Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. But you have some pretty impressive credentials. You've, you have a PhD in math and science, and a, a BS in biology of the, from the University of California. You have an MA in curriculum and in instruction. So you know a whole bunch of stuff and you know how to communicate it well, which is one thing I feel like probably a lot of, a lot of intelligent or, or educated people tend to struggle with that side of things where it's like you can get funneled into this like really, really uh, deep jargony place of like knowing how to talk about something very technically. But when you try to explain it, a lot of people aren't good teachers, but it, it sounds like you know how to teach. Ah, thank you. I do actually believe it's a gifting and I, I, um, I love teaching, uh, I feel good about when I teach. I come alive when I'm in front of a classroom. I don't get nervous. I can speak in front of an audience of 1,500. And, wow. Um, yeah, I, but I don't think, I, I think people can learn how to be public speakers and to get better at teaching, absolutely. I don't think everybody's sort of born to teach. But I do think some people have some natural talent, natural inclination toward it, and I do I do. Feel like that was a gifting from God. I'm, for gla me. I, I'm glad you picked up and like and decided to like develop that because I feel like there are not there are not enough people that really take teaching as an art form seriously. And it's I mean, well, especially with what you're doing, you're you've taken up this teaching on the on the basically the 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 front lines of a, of a culture war about. <laughs> <laughs> where it's like a very high stakes thing. Like, I mean, you're not just teaching inert, like little, like, like math or something that, that seems like, okay, this is just, this is just a system and this is information and it's not relevant. Like the stuff that you're talking about, you teach evolution. Is, is this right? You teach evolution primarily to Christian schools and Christian people, especially evangelicals. Yep. I teach evolution and ecology. So not only do I get evolution, I get global climate change too. Great. Oh, man. <laughs> I tell my freshmen, so I teach a freshman um, ecology and evolution course for science majors, but it can also count as a GE. And uh, they're all required to take it. And, you know, I just tell them, I get, they throw all the hard stuff in here and they just let me tackle it with you guys. Um, but students are, um, some of them are really shocked. You know, they come in as freshmen having only ever heard one view from mm. their church and their parents and their youth pastors. And then I build a trust with them that I am this a Christian and I do love the Lord and I pray and I try to live a good life. And 
oh yeah, except evolution, and we gotta <laughs> pay attention to climate change. And so I sort of build trust those first few weeks with them, and then I spring it on them, uh, and we dive into that. And uh, I think that's really important. Most important part about communication is you got to build the relationship first mm. if you want to deal with a difficult issue and once you've got that relationship and that trust now you can really engage yeah well i imagine that kind of scales depending on the stakes of the issue and i mean thinking about evolution a lot of people i don't think realize how high stakes of an issue this is for like for evangelicals specifically like I, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even realize how deep the roots went until I, I spent this last week just kind of watching a lot of a lot of like debates and a lot of different uh, different like teaching videos from from creationists talking about like why evolution is a lie and why it's an ev why it's like well specifically evil. Yes, yeah, like right. it's evil like it's it's trying to and and I well the weird thing is like I, well I, I want to try to get into some some of those actual kind of war moments or like uh, high intensity debate moments that, that happened in the past, like 50 years or so, like it, it seems like there was even, or at least within my communities, cause I grew up in, in, in evangelical circles. I kind of heard rumors floating around that there was like, there was fake fossils and fake skeletons. And there was like a conspiracy of like people trying to like, trying to sneak in evolution. So that way we could throw out, throw out Christianity. Do you, I mean, I assume you've, you kind of followed that and have, <laughs> like, what was happening what's there? What's going on? Yes. You know, what's going on is, um, I hate to use the word, it's so overused right now, but misinformation and fear. Um, a lot of people, I would say almost most, when I sit down with them and try to engage in a conversation about evolution, they're scared of it. They don't want to learn about it. They've been told it's a bad thing. But when you dig in any deeper than that, they have no idea why. Right. And that's unfortunate because if you're going to hold such a strong position and you're going to judge something so huge as science or one aspect of science, um, you should really know why. And the why is oftentimes because they've been told that and they've been mm -hmm. told that if you accept evolution, it means you reject God, or you have to choose between evolution and God or your faith. You have to, um, and, or if you start learning about evolution, that's going to slippery slope to atheism, yeah. or, or, or. And they're all just threats. But then I say, well, why? What is it about evolution that's so bad? Well, we came from apes. Well, right. there's our first misunderstanding. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and then, uh, and even if we do share a common ancestor, which I accept with all life on earth. Why is that a threat? And ultimately I dig all the way down to a fear that seems to be held inside people that if I'm related in my far past to some worm and then some bacteria or, or archaea or something in the, in the distant past, then less special. Right. Yeah. I it, want to it get, be like ends up feeding back into the the idea of like the image of God. Yep. I want to be created specially by God, put together by God, and if it's any other way, I'm not as special. That tells me that the reason they're rejecting evolution is fear. And a presupposition that we are special because God created us individually. But I don't hold that view. I think we're incredibly special, but we're special for very different reasons. And so 
uh, I think when they start hearing that, oh, okay. And then it it, it, is, it doesn't open a door, but it cracks a hole in the wall. Right. And and you can't get there if you don't have relationship first, a communicative yeah. relationship, a trust relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but so it goes back. I mean, I, I didn't think about this either, but I, I was watching, I forget. I found this guy on YouTube. I didn't, I don't remember his name. I watched a couple of his, his videos though. And, and for him, and I think this is a pretty common concern is that believing in evolution that seems to confuse a little bit of how you have to read Genesis then, because Genesis, you know, a, a normal reading of it, <laughs> I like a modern reading of it seems to communicate that, okay, there, there's a much different story about creation that happened and it doesn't seem to, or at least it's not, not easy to line that up with evolution. I, I from, from my perspective now, I see some interesting parallels as I begin to learn a little bit more about, about the, the theories that we have about our, our distant past and seeing this kind of ancient cosmology m- melding in. But it's, it's, for some people, it's like it's frustrating because they don't believe that God would give them a Bible that's difficult to understand. Like it comes down to the intelligibility of scripture or the simplicity of scripture. Like God, God wouldn't try to confuse us with a, with a complex text. And I, I saw somebody even arguing that like it related back to, I mean, I, I, did, I didn't realize how deeply Protestant it is to want to believe in, in uh, or to, to re- reject evolution because, and, and to want to hold to the simplicity of scripture because that idea of scripture being a mysterious thing that needs to be interpreted by somebody who's educated or like above you or who has like spiritual knowledge. That was part of the reason that the reformers left the Catholic church is because they didn't want to have somebody above them who said, well, actually you can't understand this. This is a a very complex text and you need to rely on us to do it. And obviously you, you can use that to abuse people. You can use that to confuse them and you can use that to use your power over people to manipulate them. So I, I can see I can even see why the concern is there and why the fear is there. You said something. It's uh, somebody's arguing that God wouldn't have the Bible wouldn't be complex text, and I I bristle a little at that only because how many times did Jesus give a parable? Right. And then the disciples are like, "Huh?" So then he gives another parable. And they don't understand that one either, huh? Right. I mean, we have these examples. And when I read these parables, they're just not that clear to me. Right. And, you know, some of them are. But we, we just have these examples of uh, aspects of the text and, and, and Jesus not making things just so crystal clear, um, but really broad and being able to apply to a lot of things. Right. And that should be what we're using as sort of our guide. And then I also think, okay, if it's so clear and there's a one way to read it, then what do you do with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? They don't align. And if you don't believe me, just sit down and start writing down the order of events in Genesis 1 and the order of events in Genesis 2, and they don't align. So now, which one's right? Did God not know? Did God get confused? None of that is acceptable to me. I... Of course, God is not confused about anything. So my interpretations, my readings, the people putting the Bible together obviously had reasons for doing things in particular ways. So um, even a day, 
you know, day seven, day day right, five, yeah. or day six. Let's just take that. Okay, well, it's a day on Earth, but we have a whole universe that God created. And a day is not 24 hours on another planet, right. even in our solar system. So what are you going to do with a day? Okay, well, then people start saying, well, like it says in Peter, you know, a day is a thousand years. Okay, yep. so now we're getting a little metaphorical with what a day means. Why just a thousand? Do you want to say exactly a thousand or was Peter just saying it's like a thousand? A lot right? of years, like, yeah. Right. So all of a sudden you can press in here, you press in there. If you want to take a normal reading of the Bible, which means literal, if that's what they mean by, you know, a normal reading. or um, What do we do about this? Oh, I can't even think of the word dome that's yeah. over oh, the oh, earth. What's it called? The, uh, the, um, it just the firmament. Yeah, you got it. The firmament. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, it's funny. We don't ever use of... that word for anything. So why would we remember it? What does it even mean? Exactly. <laughs> you got to do quite a bit of gymnastics to try to explain a firmament because we don't actually have a thing, a bowl up there holding up the water from above the sky. I, right. But that was the meaning. So all of these for me are just examples of I don't believe that the Bible is intended to be a scientific text. And because if it is meant to be that, it's not very reliable. And Genesis 1 and 2 are an example of the consistent inconsistencies there. So what really is it about? Well, if I'm trying to make it be a scientific test and it's not, then I have to step back and say, so what is it trying to tell me? Right. What is Genesis trying to tell me? And when we do that and we think, who's it written for? Why is it written in this particular way? The story is so beautiful. Yeah. Of, of a, you know, these people who had all these gods and these gods were bad. And, but is Israel, Israeli God is one God and is an all-powerful God. And this God creates and the things are good. Humans aren't a mistake or an accident or a bad creation like in these other gods and these other stories. But it's good. It's a beautiful view of what the first several books in Genesis are about. And we lose that because we're trying to make an explanation for a firmament and make Genesis 1 and 2 align somehow with some gymnastics going on. And I don't, I'd rather really try to understand what the point of those of that writing is for and what it's supposed to mean to the people who read it. Yeah. And that just is a better approach to me. Yeah. It's the approach I've taken. I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but it's the most logical, reasonable approach for me. It, it's. It, I imagine it's frustrating to even, I mean, you, you, you've spent so long being educating yourself on, on all these different topics. And then now to try to teach evolution to Christians, there, there's this expectation to now and go like, try to study Hebrew and understand like, or, or understand how to read ancient documents and become a theologian as well. And like, it's there's so much there there's so much i mean yeah this, this is there's there's so much packed into this this conversation so much in this sort of debate and it's i mean i i'm i'm really uh impressed that you have managed it i mean how long have you been doing this uh so i became atheist i don't know how much of my background you know but when i was in college i became atheist okay and then found myself in Japan after a year or two after I graduated and was just lonely and ended up reading the Bible and came back to Christ and came mm. back home. And now it's 1990 and um, hiding 
my science background from everybody at church and hiding my Christian faith from everybody at work because you know, they're not <laughs> compatible in the 90s. So it was right. a lot of hiding and a lot of trying to figure it out myself. And this is going to be before the internet and you couldn't do Google searches and people were writing books about evolution right. of faith and that competitive biblical scholars and theologians doing that work, but they weren't accessible books to me. So I just sort of did a lot of that work on my own and came up with a theology and it was, but it was something I could, you know, live with in the nineties that, that was consistent and coherent. Hmm. Then some books started coming out 1999, uh, four views book. And then in, I think 2001, Daryl Falk's coming to peace with science. And I read these, I'm like, Oh, wow. You know, there's some theology, there's biology, there's no people who know what they're talking about biblical studies and theologians right. saying things that you know corrected my own theology a little bit which was very needed um and so but i wasn't willing to talk to people about it so now it's 2001 2002 i'm still a little shy about right. digging into the I, I like to get along with people i don't want to argue i don't want to fight i don't want to debate debate's awful so um it was very quiet ended up you know, my PhD and you know, getting a job at a university and my second year there, they said, we'd like you to teach the ecology and evolution course. <laughs> and second year. I, okay. I know a lot about it. I've been reading about this for 15 years or, you know, whatever, almost, but okay, I'm going to try. And so, um, it sort of dove in and then I was invited in 2015 to do a TEDx talk. And wow, I did yeah. it on evolution and faith. And I couldn't believe, I, I never wanted to talk about this issue. I never wanted to confront it. In fact, I'm going to tell you, in the 1990s, I taught high school for nine years. Yeah. And you teach in biology, there's all these units, right? Cell bio and molecular bio, your genetics, your ecology, right? And so what I did is I took the evolution unit and I put it all the way at the end of the school year because you'd run out of time. <laughs> so, you know, you might have it the last week of school before finals and parents weren't really paying attention. Neither were the kids. And right. You could just fit in a few things and be done because I oh, wanted man. to avoid the controversy. Right. And next thing I know you know, that was the 90s, yeah. 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, I'm invited to speak at churches and Christian universities about evolution faith. I think, how did I get here? But, you know, things just sort of fall into place and all of a sudden you start talking about it. And and I don't I don't want to argue about it. If somebody yeah. wants to how hold did you, their view, they can. Yeah, how, how did you avoid it? Like, I mean, as soon as you start talking about this topic, I mean, I, I even just yesterday was trying to just bring it up. I was like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to talk to somebody who teaches teaches evolution to, to evangelicals tomorrow. How, do you have any questions? And it was like the conversation went from zero to 100 in like two seconds, because I again, it's like to me, it just seems like, OK, it's partially the generation I'm in, partially the peers I'm surrounded by. It just it feels like it's just. It's just, a t I mean, it's an interesting topic, but it's not a high stakes topic because it, f for me, it doesn't deeply conflict with my faith, but there's so many people for which it does. And, and again, I, I, I didn't find exactly, I think I actually, maybe I wrote it down. I was, I was trying to understand from my dad exactly where, why it, it felt so deeply like scary or like, or so intense to talk about this for him. And maybe we can come back to that in a second, but I, I wanted to ask how, how have you managed to like prevent these conversations from from escalating quickly into a debate? Especially, I mean, you said you don't 
You don't like debates. How do you prevent it from turning into a debate? Debates are quite useless because I'm holding my point and I'm not going to change. And you're holding your point and you're not going to change. So why are we talking? Yeah. But conversation is very different. Um, I don't ever bring it up to somebody, <laughs> but it'll come up. What do you teach? You know, what do you do? I teach. Oh, what level do you teach? I teach college. Oh, what do you teach in college biology? Oh, what biology classes, right? And next thing you know, you're like, I teach ecology and evolution. You're a point, Loma. You know, oh, do you, you know, refute evolution? Well, actually, no, I, I teach scientific evolution because that's what I accept. Boom, you're in that conversation, right? I try to avoid it and then boom, I'm there person goes off like whomever you were talking with yesterday you know they go off on their little thing and I just let them do their little spiral out of control thing and I just listen and I go mm-hmm, and I ask some questions and you know well why, why do you think that or how did you hear that and then if it could just end I just let it end because the reality is that person is not really interested in engaging in this conversation right. they want to vent so you kind of gauge it out a little bit angst and they're done but yeah. what has been fascinating to me is lots of times that person will come back a week later, a month later, a year mm. later. You know, I've been thinking about that conversation we had. Right. And you heard me, but you didn't seem to agree. <laughs> How is it that you can still be a Christian and accept evolution? Like All of a sudden, they start asking questions. And now when right. that happens, now we we can engage in dialogue. Right. And we can talk about the different views and the different presuppositions. Where does one prioritize the Bible and the reading of the Bible and the influence of the history and the people it was written to and the context and those kinds of things. And so we can engage in that kind of conversation. Um, but it's most of the time, if it's just, you know, I would call it a person on the street. I mm -hmm. just don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I just say, oh, yeah, I hear your view. I understand how you can have that view. That's not the view I have, but I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like even just being willing to listen to it and not be, not, not fire back with the same level of intensity, that affects people a lot too. And let, lets them know that yes. you're willing, you're somebody that's sort of safe to have a conversation with. Yeah. And what I've also come to learn is that I'm an anomaly for a lot of these people that are really scared right. of evolution because they've never heard of somebody like me. Right. Well, so many people have a like, this kind of slippery slope theory that like if you if you start pulling that thread, the whole thing's going to fall apart. Which I mean, from one sense, is is kind of a, a scary idea that 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 your your belief in your faith is that if you actually examine it, it will entirely fall apart. That's a, that's horrible. You don't actually then even have a good theology at all, right? right. But I mean, I, I personally can attest to the fact that in in high well when I when I first started asking these questions was was in like Bible college that that is sort of more or less what happened for me and I think that is the experience of some people is that w when you begin to examine your faith a lot of it does fall apart because because faith is complicated and whenever you want to kind of have a whole overarching enveloping view on everything there's a very high chance that there's a lot in there that's going to be dead weight and that you're going to have to like, you, you partially just have to accept that that believing anything you're 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 not going to be entirely right. You might only be 60% right, and sometimes that has to be good enough. But then if you want to go start investigating that, you're going to find out that there are some big parts of what you believe that are are not right, and it's that's going to take time to work through. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. 
people are afraid of the doubt. I, anybody that tells me they've got all the answers, they've got all figured out, I think, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll pray for you because <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have a really hard time in your future. I don't know when it's going to come or what's going to cause it, but something is going to happen. But I, I rather appreciate when people are like, well, I don't know what to do about this or I don't know what to do about you know, the, the, the hard questions, um, reconciliation of what Genesis says with what science says, or uh, why is it if God's so loving, how can, you know, I just, this little baby at my work, this colleague at my work, her little three-year-old baby just died. And you think, how can, how can God allow that to happen? That's such a sweet, innocent child, right? And horrible, uh, the pandemic for goodness sakes, right? Yeah. So these are really hard questions to try to make sense of and come to answers with. And, you know, you can have that I want to call it, I don't want to be insulting, but cheap little answer of, oh, God caused the pandemic. Right. Then how is God love? That doesn't reconcile for me, right? So I can't have God causing bad things and then say God is love and God is good and, you know, and God loves us. And, you know, like, so what do you do with that inconsistency? Oh, and then you become atheist because you can't deal with that inconsistency. Well, right. you don't have to become atheist. You can learn to sit in the unknown. You can learn to sit in the doubt. And I tell my students I have the gift of doubt. You know, people say they have the gift of faith. I have the gift <laughs> the of gift. doubt. Because, right. you know, every hour upon hour, I think, yeah, maybe there isn't a God. No, I know there's a God. I, I'm sure there's a God. But yeah, maybe there isn't a God. You know what I mean? Or maybe I don't really understand this. And so I live in that. And I think my faith is stronger because I live in that. Right. Well, because faith I'm isn't really faith. willing to be wrong. Unless it has sort of a relationship with doubt, I don't think. Say that again. You cut out. Sorry. So yeah, I, I don't think faith even really means much of anything. Like I don't think the word faith actually is faith unless it has some sort of a relationship to doubt. Uh, that's a great. That perfectly well said. <laughs> <laughs> got nothing there. That's I agree with you completely. But, so so for you, did you have any sort of uh, uh, unraveling experience though, where where like, well, I mean, you said you had to kind of hold these things kind of not not together for a while and then eventually you had to try and figure out some way of reconciling them. But like, did, did how much of your, when you began to examine your own faith and your own relationship with Christianity, how much of that had to kind of fall apart and re reemerge into something different? Yeah. Yeah. Freshman year college, when the professor said, you got to choose between evolution or faith. I was in a biology class and he's like, evolution is not compatible with, with believing in God. This was like an atheist I or a Christian? Uh, it was a secular school, atheist. Okay. And I was like, man, I never heard that. I just had never heard that in mm. high school. And um, I went to my youth group pastor and I went to another pastor and I asked them both the same thing. And they basically told me exactly the same thing. You mm. got to pick. And then I kept just taking these bio classes and there's just so much uh, reliable data about evolution from so many different fields of biology and chemistry and geology and and so if I had to choose, because those are my only two options, that's when I just said, okay, there's no mm. God, done. And I, well, I was a little snarky about it, you know, <laughs> like I kind of went all the way over the, you know, people that believe or they're weak or they need to believe or right. um, when I was in Japan and sort of came full circle, you know, a little bit of an existential crisis, I was 22 and, um, you know, what's the purpose of life? Why am I here? What if it, it all ends? Does that matter? You know, and um, I'm reading the Bible, writing letters to my sister in the States. And ultimately it came down to, I 
believe why I can't, I don't, I'm not 100% sure I have my reasons but I believe and I accept that Jesus came here as God incarnate and died for our sins okay now what do I do with all the rest <laughs> so that's what that decade was that decade was a I hold this and I hold this yeah. And I have no idea what to do with them. Right. And they inched a, together a little closer and closer and closer and closer. Yeah. And But it took a decade. And um, now I think it can take people a couple months because they can read quite a few books that help them right. bridge that gap. And so then it's just getting over their own fears and anxieties and, and that messages they were hearing when they were younger. Mm. Um, but I, I still don't think it should be rushed. Yeah. And and one thing I see all the time is my students say, oh, yeah, I'm totally okay with evolution. I'm okay with all animals share a common ancestor except humans. We're specially created. Right. And so why? Why humans? Why do we need to be specially created? And so, you know, there's layers of this, and, and that's cool. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, it's that principle, though, of learning how to hold two seemingly incompatible and potentially actually incompatible ideas or, or worldviews at the same time. That's That's a... An ability, a skill that I don't think, I, I don't think is is really. I mean, you're you're a teacher. I'm glad you, you you have a chance to maybe teach this, but I don't think it's getting taught as nearly as often as, as it should be because I think that's so important, be, even beyond the scale of just a relationship between religion and evolution. Though I mean, fundamentally, that's that that that's a, that's a good kind of picture of, of one of the central dichotomies of just okay we always have like a, a sort of a romantic view of life and a very technical view of life and those are never going to mesh perfectly it's in everything that we do it's in our career um my dad calls it the i don't know i don't know if you edit words in here but the s word <laughs> don't worry it about it we, there's, okay, there's so no, he calls it big restrictions here. <laughs> he calls it the shit sandwich. Okay. So what shit sandwich are you willing to put up with at right. work? Because everybody's job is going to have the shit sandwich. So what can you eat? Mm -hmm. What can you suffer through in your own work? So you got to carry this thing that you really don't like about the things in your work, like grading papers uh, and faculty meetings, uh, right? Like I really can't stand those things. I love hanging out with my students and enlightening them and getting them to wrestle with really hard stuff, right? So I'm willing to put up with that sandwich to get to but I learned to hold those tensions. You're in love. It's the same thing. I can't stand that my mate does this and this and this and this and this, right? But I love all these things. And you mm -hmm. literally live in that tension or yeah. you break up. And um, so we actually learn to live in it in different categories in our life. And yeah. I think that that can then apply to other categories. Yeah. And I see people in college really trying, at least at my university, really trying to help students wrestle with these things they come into the class with, these ideas that they think that are accurate and right, and then learning something new. For example, maybe reading authors from other countries that give them another perspective on something that they absolutely yeah. knew was right and sure. And then you get enlightened about other views and you're like, wow. And now you're holding these two things and what do you do? And so it's really what you're, I think, bringing up is worldview changes 
or things that contrast with the worldview you've created for yourself, those are really hard to modify. And and I think as you can get older and older, if you're willing to keep learning, you're willing to keep reading, you're willing to get out to your little, get out of your little holy, holy huddle and, and dip into other views, you really start expanding and learning to be just much more open. You're going to hold the views that you hold, but you can be open to hearing and listening and maybe something I'm holding is wrong and I'm willing to modify or adjust. I feel like I like that analogy though about holding holding two things and having a, a shit sandwich. But I, I think you, you, I I want to expand it slightly because I think that there's probably a shit sandwich in both categories. Oh yes, <laughs> and it's like when I look at when I look over here and I look at my biblical tradition or I look at my Christian tradition. There's so much there that's so important to me, and there's but there's also so much that that when I'm kind of looking through a scientific or or a, or maybe a more secular or more technical or logical or or whatever some other lens that is really difficult to get through that I have to kind of, that I kind of have to eat that sandwich. And then on this side, it's like, I have like a science is such a, a beautiful and interesting thing. And like, it gives me so much and it leads me in so many interesting places. But then there's, there's some things, even just par- parts of, of communities, parts of certain arguments that, that lead me or they, that are just difficult for me to digest. And it's like, you've you've got that on both sides. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. It's, yeah. And it's just how to help people expand. You know, I've been, I've been reading the, um, a couple of books just this past year about the patriarchy and the church. And I know this is not our topic that we're talking about. No worries. Um, but Demez has a book and Barr has a book and they're, they're fantastic for women. Uh, about understanding how did we get here? A Christian woman in 2021, uh, especially somebody my age, I have a lot of baggage I brought along with me about how I'm supposed to behave, what I'm supposed to do, and how I'm supposed to act, and and where did all that come from? And one of the most enlightening things I, I should have known this, but I didn't, is when I was in the in the um, I want to say more conservative church circles yeah. uh, for 25 years. We were exposed to particular books um, from Christian book sellers. I think that was called Christian book dealer, CBD. Isn't CBD something with pot, I think? I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 I think so. <laughs> Christian book sellers, maybe CBS. I can't remember. <laughs> but they only carried particular kinds of books that ascribed right. a particular worldview. So I was only exposed to this. So when I was trying to understand what does it mean to be a Christian woman, a Christian mom, a Christian right. um, wife, I'm only exposed to this view because that's all we were reading, talking about in the small women's groups, and the small group studies, right. and right. right, like that's all I know. And the books, I, I'm an author on a book already, one of them, um, and then I'm I'm on a author of a book that's being written right now. Okay. Neither one of them would be held by this book dealer. Because it's outside. It's books about evolution of faith or ecology and faith. And none of them would be okay in that group. So what's been really interesting to me is I'm outside of what I used to be living in. And I wish that the people that are inside this group could read some of these outside books and not be scared to read them. I mean, example would be I've had students tell me, oh, I'm not allowed to read Rob Bell. Yeah. Like, what do you mean you're not allowed to read Rob yeah. Bell? Well, I'm not allowed to read Rob Bell. Like, you know, my parents don't read Rob Bell. I'm like, that's the first book. I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this. That you should get out there and read to figure out why is everyone so scared of Rob Bell? What do you think of Rob Bell? Right. And do you think those ideas are intriguing? 
no justification for liking or not liking Rob Bell. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I guess, a different perspective, maybe because I'm an educator, maybe because I've been going to school my entire life and never finished yeah. or never stopped going. Um, but I just... I think as soon as you're not supposed to read something, you should. I, <laughs> one last thing. I had these books. I still have them. They're downstairs. Um, I had them when my kids were little. One is Islam. One is uh, Judaism. One is Christianity. One is, I think, Buddhism. I, I can't remember. There's five of them. This is a little series of books. And I remember somebody from my church coming over and they looked at those books up on the shelf. They're pretty books. So that's why I have them out. They're always decorative and um, I read them all, and the person said, "I don't, I don't understand why you can have those out." And I said, "Cause, like, we should know about what all these religions are saying, and well, you're, you should make sure your kids don't read them." And I'm like, "I highly encourage my kids to read them. I think my kids should read them because I think my kids should know what they believe and why they believe it." And um, I mean, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian because it is a most beautiful story of faith and faith it's we don't have to work for it we are loved we are forgiven that is spectacular that doesn't make any sense if that's going to be a faith in contrast to this other face all the other ones we have to do work and do good and there's constant punishment and you know what i mean like i I mean i could have things wrong but my point being this one is just a gift. It's just a gift that we get to have. And I think, okay, if I'm going to believe in something, that one sounds right to me. Now mm. let me understand that one more and better, you know, than trying to figure out good theology, good biblical studies yeah. and that kind of thing. No, it's, I mean, it's interesting because well, th- th- this, exactly this topic you're talking about of like exposing yourself to new ideas is one that I've been like, I mean, that's kind of more or less what this whole project is about for me. And one of the things I'm kind of running into, though, is that I'm, I'm well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm reminded a lot of times of, I, I had this one conversation with my roommate in college where he was, he had this perspective that he was like very, very careful about what he would talk about with who. Uh, mm-hmm. Not not for his own, like for his own like he was afraid of talking about things. I mean, he was afraid of it because he didn't want to cause somebody to kind of begin to have to just digest something in their faith that was sort of too much for them. And well, I, I, I'm still kind of confused about how, how to integrate that kind of thinking because I, I initially I just kind of brushed them off. I was like, why would you not want to talk about something? I mean, everybody should just think about everything personally and just kind of process it. But I mean, for, for one thing I'm realizing it, with my own experience, I mean, and you talked about it, it was a 10-year process of trying to figure out how, like, it, it's a big project a lot of times to figure out how to square different circles and try to take, you know, highly different worldviews and try to make them mesh in some way and try to work out some cognitive dissonance or even not work it out, but just hold that. That that takes a lot of, a lot of patience, a lot of character. And, well, I don't know, it's... What part of me wonders, I don't, I don't know how much I can expect of people personally to, to and I, I don't want to look down on people and say, oh, you, you just can't handle the truth. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm even looking at my own life and wondering, is, do I have a limit of how much I should stretch myself out into different worldviews? Like, is there, is there such a thing as too much? And how do I kind of straddle that line? Yeah, it's a really good point. I have 
completely run into that same exact thing. I think, well, why doesn't everybody want to spend 10 years digging into evolution and faith? Like, this is a big deal. You know, and, and I, I quickly... There's a lot of big deals out there. There's a, that's exactly it. And that, one, it takes a lot of work and time. And to be honest with you, not everybody thinks like we do. You, ha I can hear in the things that you say, a very philosophical perspective. You'd be a great philosopher... You like digging in, thinking deeply about things, comparing and contrasting. And a lot of people just don't have that. That is just, they just live a little less deep. Um, and a lot of people want answers. Just tell me what to believe and then I'll go with that. Um, there are things I've tried to notice in my own life that I don't want to dig into. So um, my fiance is huge into reforming police and the structure of policing and reading books and writing letters to the paper and trying to get on the and I'm super passionate about doing things differently um, to try to better our society. And I ask him questions and I'm like, just give me the short answers because oh, I'll probably agree with you. And, you know, <laughs> Because to be honest with you, I don't want to spend a lot of time digging into that one. And I right. think it's super important. Yeah, I think it's an important issue, but I'm going to kind of trust or go along with somebody who's done a lot of the reading and the thinking about it yeah. as opposed to spending my time on that because I'm not passionate about that. So what I've come to realize is people have their few their things. Whatever their things are, they got a couple of things, maybe three, that they're going to dig in and dive into and follow through on and everything else is going to be periphery. Um then they're going to maybe go with the authority on the other things because we all pay attention to authority on lots of things. So I got to let it go that people don't really care about evolution faith or <laughs> climate change a little different because I think that's going to affect the health and well-being right, of every right. single per person on earth. So I think we all need to kind of dive into some of those things. And you could probably say the same thing about policing. So maybe I just caught myself being a hypocrite right there. But, um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, it, but you're revealing there's a there's a real deep tension there because there's so much available if, I mean, any topic you can think of, and, and there are so many, there's so many important ones depending on where your attention, you know, where, where, where it runs off to, what sort of problem presents itself to you. And I think that's probably something to pay attention to too, is that there, there are problems that, that you kind of are, maybe cut out more to be able to engage with and to be able to solve. And like, maybe you should follow those rabbit holes. But like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, partially I'm trying to begin to have a bit more patience with, I mean, I'm part, partly I'm interested that, that you're, you still, do you still identify as an evangelical Christian? Do you have a more broad term? Do you like to call yourself, you know, just a Christian in general? I'm scared of the word evangelical in the last four years, yeah. four and a half years, <laughs> because it actually represents a particular group of people that think one way and vote one way. Right. And evangelical, it, it got taken. The word got sure. stolen. Um, and evangelical is, I, I like the more traditional perspective of evangelical that um, I have a view of the Bible as inspired word of God um, that I try to follow the teachings of Jesus in the Bible as best that we can understand those messages and that um, I believe if I can share love caring understanding patience kindness gentleness with everybody that's what we're really being called to do. 
And so if you want to call this evangelical, I'll take it. Right now, I think it's a Christ follower is a better representation or progressive right. evangelical. Um, I hate to give up a word just because it got stolen by media and right. stuff. Well, it's it's kind of weird because it, at, at a certain point, it would sort of identify you with, and, and this is still the line I'm kind of writing, is that I, I, I feel somewhat obligated to identify as an evangelical because that is my tradition. Those are my peers. That's the communities that I've been surrounded with growing up with. And that those are the people that I, that I care about. So I got part of me feels like obligated to, tr to try to like participate in this, in this religion and, and to you know, see where we can go with it. Like, I, I don't think it's, I don't know. I like, I obviously there's, there's some serious issues I have with, with the way that evangelicalism is, is presented, is going. But I mean, I don't know. I I don't want to. I don't want to give up on it. I don't think it's a sinking ship. Hopefully, maybe it is. <laughs> I know. I agree with you. I maybe we can really keep forging forward and and retain what we had before everything kind of got taken over I by the know. media. I mean, but it's like in order to do that, though, you're you have to become really, really patient. I think with with your peers, and I think you have to kind of just like we were just talking about a second ago. It's like I, I don't think. I can really expect all of my evangelical peers to just like to, to go through this journey thinking about evolution. It, it may eventually come up for them. It may become something that they'll have to have a more nuanced position on. But I, th I think that's fundamentally the difference is it's either a simple position or a nuanced one. But And the simple ones, I mean, I, I guess they, they do kind of motivate your actions in certain ways, but like there, there's, there's fundamentalism on both sides. And it's, it's like, I, I can't expect people to not I mean, like you said, you have to have you have to have things be in the periphery. You have to have things. You have to have simplistic understandings of things. So that way, you could delegate that attention to something that's that's important yeah. to you and that's relevant to you. I think um, my goal. I don't think I know my goal, and I tell this <laughs> to my students. My goal at the end of my class is not to have changed them. I mean, love if they accepted evolution. That's great, but that's not my goal. My goal is that they stop believing that somebody like me can exist. In other words, my goal is that they can understand a Christian who accepts the consensus science on mm -hmm. evolution, that they understand that that's one view a Christian can hold. Mm -hmm. So they don't fall into the black or white. If you accept evolution, you're atheist or, you know, a heretic, or you, you don't accept evolution, you're a good Christian. That, 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 that's this uh, binary system. And my goal is that they understand there's this whole spectrum of views people can hold. So when they leave my class, there's space for a variety of views. That's my goal. And if I've accomplished that, I've succeeded. And some of the research on helping people with controversial issues, uh, psychology research, any controversial issue, is um, to provide role models hmm. so that they can understand that somebody in their in-group holds a different view than them. Well, I'm in their in-group. If I can build trust that they see me as a Christian, a, a real Christian, and what's real versus fake, I don't know, <laughs> but that they can trust that I actually truly love the Lord with my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. Yet I hold a different view than them. I'm a role model. And so they say that there's a huge power of exposing students to role models of people in their in-group that hold different views than they hold. And so that's one piece that, that I can contribute at a Christian school mm. um, that I think can help students. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 that, that to me seems like I, I was just 
as I was thinking about what you do, I was like wondering, what is it that makes this click? How, how are you able to exist in this position? Because the amount of intensity of emotion and of com- conversation that's got to happen there, like, but I mean, that, that makes sense, making it relational, just a- allowing people to like, to, I mean, you have to be a certain sort of person. Like, like I said, like a lot of intellectuals, a lot of academics don't have that personal, personable, that, that relational aspect, I, th- I think. So, some, I guess some of them do, but it, 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 there's, a, there's a possibility of just getting kind of deep in the books, but like paying attention to how you treat people and, and how you build relationships. I think that's, that's so, so important for... Yeah, I think what you're saying, a lot of people have built up their little stage metaphor and they've spent a long time building up that little stage and they stand on that little stage and they've got their thing and they're telling people about whatever it is and to get off of that and allow uh, to step down off that little stage and allow other views is really hard because you spent all your time on this. Um, and, and I, it's, it's not fake. I really, really would love everybody to leave my class accepting evolution. I really would. <laughs> and, and I do get sad when my seniors write their senior essays um, and they write about evolution and they say at the end, accept humans. I, you know, accept all, <laughs> evolution's all good, accept humans. And I, ugh, right. it hurts a little bit, but I think, hey, I made progress, yeah. right? And, and maybe in 10 more years as a biologist, as a person working in the field, They'll, they'll have arrived. And so um, if, if we can, we, maybe academia, maybe my colleagues, maybe anybody that like you that's in a, a church environment where you're just trying to have a positive impact and opening minds, maybe we just see ourselves as one little stepping stone across a really wide river that has really fast water rushing by and we're just one stepping stone. And our job is just to be one stepping stone. We don't have to get them across the river. Right. We just get to be that. And that stepping stone can't be full of spikes and be wobbly. And you know what I mean? Right. Like it just needs to be a nice, smooth, soft, soft solid stepping stone. Right. And just, then leave the rest for the rest of their life. Yeah. It's, yeah, there's, there's, there's such a radical difference between having, there's, there's a sort of comfort in feeling like you get to just kind of grab people and put them where they're supposed to go, as opposed to this humility of participation where you're just like, I, I think that's a beautiful picture of just like, you have to lay yourself down so that way, ultimately, I mean, if, if you believe in God, you believe that God could use you as sort of a stepping stone to bring people somewhere and you don't get to decide where they're going. You'd have to participate in, a, in something that's bigger than, than yourself. Yeah, yeah. That's that's my goal or my hope, you know. I fail at things a lot, but that's awesome. okay. You dive back in, you keep trying. <laughs> Great. Well, I, do we have do we have a couple more minutes here? Sure. Okay. I I didn't want to spend most of our time doing this because I wanted to. I, I think intuitively, and and part of the show is just that I I want to kind of focus on the the relational and the conversational end of things, and I I don't know that that what we could do right here, and I, I wanted to see if maybe you could. And just kind of rocket answer, like rapid fire, rapid fire, that's the word I'm looking for. Rapid fire, answer a couple of of questions. I wrote down some of the concerns, but I I don't feel like, like maybe this will land for some people. Maybe I I think this just might be interesting. Um, But I I wanted to to spend some time just just hearing hearing you out first. But let's, if we can spend a few minutes doing this, I think this might be fun. Um, Well, okay. One of the things, and and I was going to bring this up earlier. Do you, did you follow down any of these conspiracy rabbit holes about, about planting planting pig teeth in in 
to make like fake human transitional bones or anything like that. Did, did, did you follow any of those conspiracies? Is there any merit to any of that? Were there people that were, that were so desperate to get creationists off their back that they were trying to like make fake... Uh, fake skeletons and stuff like this? There's always going to be people trying to do this. Um, Hmm. That unfortunately for um, the lay audience of science makes them think that all the data, or gives an excuse, all the data can be discounted. But the way science works is you study something, you write, you have your observations, you make your conclusions, you write about it, you submit it, and the journal sends it to this team of scientists in your specialty and they critique the crud out of it. And you get this back and they're like, your paper sucks because it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. And then you modify and then you send it back to them and then they might say, this still sucks or okay, it's a little bit better, but you probably shouldn't publish it anyway. You know, like it. And so eventually it gets published. So, and then it becomes one piece of data in the big, you know, compilement of data we have out there. And I think a lot of people just don't understand how science really works. Somebody can't just say something and then it gets published and now it becomes real. It is just not how science works. And now with the internet, anyone can say anything they want. And then you say, oh, there it is on the internet. Oh, that makes it true. Well, it doesn't. And so if people really understood science a little bit better, they would realize that those kinds of data would have to go through, car, you know, uh, radiometric dating testing, peer review, all kinds of other things. And even if one snuck through, it's going to be many others trying to reproduce that. They can't reproduce it. That makes it all fall apart. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, can I give you a quick example? Yeah, so yeah. one of the things people say to counteract um, global climate change and the problem with glaciers is they say, well, you know, and they'll name these three glaciers. These ones are getting bigger. These glaciers are growing. And I'm like, heck yeah, you're right. You know your science. Those three glaciers are growing. So when I line up these 100 glaciers, 97 of them are shrinking by a minimum of 10%. Three are growing. And we would expect that with climate change because some climates will get colder, other climates will get warmer, but overall as an earth, there's a warming trend and there's a decline in glaciers. But yes, you can find one or two or three that are growing and we would expect that and we predict that. So there's my example of picking and choosing this little thing and then kind of making that your whole thing. When when you're talking about something you don't really know about. Right. So... So, so you would say it's not very likely that there are there are people that there's a conspiracy to try to plant uh, no. to plant <laughs> fake data. There is no conspiracy. There are losers out there trying to do bad things. That is not the majority. There are amazing scientists finding legitimate things, and it's extremely challenging, if even possible at all, to um, have irrefutable fake. Um, fossils. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that, that's that's question number one. Um, <laughs> abiogenesis. This is one of the big things that gets brought up a lot in in like anti-evolutionary uh, creation videos and, and something that a lot of my creationist friends will have a problem with, the idea of life coming from non-life. Is there, is that a so, difficult thing to explain? Um, it is a difficult thing. We haven't figured it out in science yet how it's happened. We can we can see how things can form. We can put a bunch of ingredients together and we can get 
proteins and stuff like that, but have we gotten life as you and I would define life? No. Okay, so we could explain that at some point in the future. We might not explain that at some point in the future. It could be the thing that is the God thing um, that started it. It has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on evolution. So, so there would be like evolution a view that Evolution is that once God... there's life, now what happened? Right, okay. So from single cell, multi-cells, uh, animal, uh, water animals, land animals, how, how do we transition up? That's evolution. Right. This thing about first life, it okay, could be God thing. It could be a God thing. It could be yeah. uh, we just haven't figured it out yet thing. I, I yeah. don't care. Doesn't well, I mean, matter either way. It doesn't negate from God a Christian for perspective, me at all. Yeah, it's like regardless of whatever happened, it would be a God thing. <laughs> right. God created. So if He created in such a way, and I, I'm sorry to say, He, if God created, because God is not a man in the white beard sure, standing sure. on a cloud, yeah. <laughs> God. Um, but if God created in such a way that the stirring of all the chemicals and particles came together to create life. It doesn't have to be touched by the man in the white beard in order for life to happen. So it's a too simplistic view of God. It's putting God in this little box. God had to do it this way. God has to be touching it to make it. I mean, eh. See, right. universe, it's really big. It's super confusing, and we're learning a ton every single year. There's space for figuring out that life could have emerged just by mixing in all the chemistry and the physics and getting life. Yeah. Okay. None of those threaten my faith. It's, my faith, faith is just not, that is not a pillar of my faith. Yeah. I mean, and, and one thing I, a, a worldview or a philosophy I've been exposed to recently is called um, panpsychism, which is the idea that like there is literally actually no matter, no thing in the universe that isn't conscious. And so mm, it, there's not an idea that consciousness or that life just, you know, emerges at a certain point, but that like, well, I mean, I, I guess it doesn't directly fit into this problem because we still wonder exactly how, how a, a, a biological organism, but like we can see chemicals forming and then like, well, at what point is it, I mean, is there an easy threshold? How do we define the difference between something that's alive that's n and something that's not alive? Yeah, there's seven, seven or nine. Oh, you're getting me back to my, <laughs> my roots, but there's seven or nine character traits. It's, Got to be reproducible. It's um, it has to reproduce, or it has to be. Yeah, it has to be able to somehow reproduce okay, yeah. in some particular way. Oh, I can't believe I can't think of these at the, right off the top. You stumped me. <laughs> Sorry, um, no, no, no. I, I know. I I'm just throwing stuff at you here. Yeah, no, that's okay. But there's a list of things that we've come up with, and that's why we would call a virus not alive. Oh, because really? it can't it can't survive on its own. A virus has to be within a cell, so a some other cell. A virus is not a, an in, in, in a living. It doesn't meet the criteria for being alive. And then there's okay. debate all about is virus alive? Is virus not alive? Blah blah blah. But that's sort of that differentiating kind yeah. of gray area. Let Orson Scott Card take care of that. Have you read any of the Ender's Game series? Uh, I've only seen movies. Okay. Is there a movie? Is Ender's Game movie? There's right? a movie, yeah. yeah. In like the third yeah. book in that series, he starts going into like the ethics of destroying a virus because what if it's alive? And oh, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, it's sort of like uh, data on Star Trek. So I'm a yeah. Trekkie. Okay, great. So great, is, great. is data alive or not right. alive? And yeah. consciousness and yeah. So. Yeah, so th there's a lot there, anyways. Maybe we could at least leave it at that it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> okay, irreducible complexity. Uh, something that a lot of a lot of people yeah. bring up is that how it's impossible for an eye to evolve. That's it's too complex. There's there's so much there would be so much dead weight for it to just kind of pop up out of nowhere. Like there's there's so much so many parts that need to work together for an eye to work that you wouldn't they wouldn't just evolve on their own. They become useless. And evolution is very very chintzy with its with its spending. It, it doesn't 
invest in things that don't immediately give it, um, I'm, I'm personifying evolution, but evolution okay. that doesn't invest in things that don't pay, pay off within one yeah. generation. Yeah, exactly. So how do we explain some of those things that creationists would point to as like irreducible complexity? I can respect the desire to try to come up with an explanation to refute evolution by saying some things had to be specially created, like an eye. I respect the desire to do hmm. that. I don't agree with it whatsoever because first off, when it, the idea of irreducibility uh, first came out, I guess maybe it was 90s, a bunch of biologists that were non-believers, even some that were believers, tackled this. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, no, no, we can show you how. And so a bunch of those things, like an eye and many, many, many other things, have been fully explained as to how they evolved from a biological viewpoint. And there's articles out there, journal articles from reputable scientists and supported by many others to show that we can explain the evolution of I. So what happens then if all your cards are held in this, uh, we can't explain an I, and then biology explains the I, and that was, that was why you were a believer, Right. You, now you got nothing. Right. So it's called the God of the gaps view. That's the same thing for me as, oh, we needed God to start life. Could God have living, living things? Sure. But I'm not holding all my cards in that because if we can suddenly do that in a lab, I'm not going to suddenly give up on God and become an atheist because that's yeah. not what my faith is in. Right. So, no, irreducible complexity has fallen into this trap of there's things we just can't explain. Therefore, it must be God. And they get very angry when we say that, when us Christians that don't like irreducible complexity, when we say that sentence. But ultimately, that's really what irredu irreducible complexity is. When I read the books and, and I get all done, I say, well, this person's trying to say that this is so complex, there has to be a God. And could God be involved in having to do that? Sure. But if we explain that scientifically, what do you got left? Yeah. No God. And right. I just, I, I do I, not, I'm not okay with that. Mm -hmm. Well, th that's an interesting, I, I, recently I, I, that word had kind of come back into my my sphere of, I don't know, my vocabulary. So, somebody somebody said the God of the gaps to me. And I, and I remember that being a, a phrase that had brought up in high school and stuff like that. But it's not something that, that gets thrown around unless you're having these sort of, the, these right. kind of conversations. And I was like, why is that even a problem? So, but I, I think you've kind of laid it out. So is, the, is that if your God is literally just this, this creature that inhabits all of the gaps in your understanding, then every time you understand something more then that God shrinks a little bit. And to the extent, I, but there, there seems to be something useful though about thinking about, I mean, if you think about God as, as a, being that knows everything and understands everything, then that would mean that everything that you'd under, understand, God does understand. And so you can sort of, you can rely on God for those gaps. But if, if it's like everything else is natural and God's not involved in that, basically the things that you understand don't relate to God in any way. Those are just your understanding. But then there's the things you don't understand and that's where God is. I think that's where the problem shows up. It's like, if, if God exists across the spectrum of understanding, including the things that you do understand, then, then, then that gives you the freedom to investigate the gaps and also the comfort to know that there is a God that understands those gaps too. And I think one thing that you said is interesting is then there's just nature happening without God. Right. Okay. Well, who's the creator? Right. <laughs> 
Okay, so, and if there are mechanisms in nature, from evolution to gravity to whatever else, to how atoms and, and molecules and particles all interact, why is that not of God? Yeah. What is so when I when I when I hear these views, I'm back at the box of really you narrow it down. There's this God. Okay, maybe he doesn't have a white beard standing on a cloud, but there's this thing and it's pulling the lever. But God, if God is creator of the universe and we've got energy and matter and particles and all these things we don't understand, and these are all part of the mechanisms of God's creation, then why would anything that happens in nature on earth, in our environment, the evolution of uh, land mammals, be not God, just right. nature? Yeah. There's no such a thing to me. Yeah, That's like saying that God dichotomy. can only be a lever puller and isn't bigger than all of that right. and part of all of the creation and the way things were originally uh, brought into being. And so it, it just is a theological issue for me. It's an inconsistency that, oh my God's so big, he can do everything and know everything. Oh, but he's so small, he has to pull these levers because you know nature can can outwit God if he doesn't pull these levers. Right, yeah, it kind of pits like, God against nature and says that like, well, sometimes nature does stuff, but then sometimes yeah. God does stuff. There's an Sorry, did we? I, th I think we're having some internet issues here. Yep, we just cut, you just cut out again. So try okay. that one one more time. Just I said start with whatever it, it, you were going to say. I said there's a, there's there's a false dichotomy there, and we kind of pit God against nature and say sometimes God's doing things and sometimes nature's doing things, but that they're different things. That like nature is out of God's control. Yeah, God's word and God's world is the way it's often said. We've got the Bible that helps us to try to understand Jesus and and is Israel, um, the growth of, I want to say evolution, that's how I get stuck in the word, of, of Israel over time. Um, and then we've got God's world, which is the universe, which we can study that and try to better understand God. Right. And um, they give us very, very different views of God. One of God sort of gives us that's the bible gives us sort of this um man being type of and, and the god of the universe because it's something that's just really big can't quite even grapple it looks like our connection is yeah. holding up now let's let's pretend we just asked that question again can you explain a little bit about the fossil record can you explain a little yes. bit about these concerns a lot of people especially creationists have about not seeing enough transitional fossils for especially yes. for humans so the first thing I uh, tackle is the word transitional fossil because people have this perception that um, you have this original animal and then there's this transition animal and then you have the animal we see today. And that's just a very simplistic view. It's not totally accurate. So we like to use intermediate, intermediate species okay. um, because we don't want it to just seem like there was this predetermined transition and we're looking for this one piece. But we're like, can we see species along the way that makes sense when we see beginning and an end. Now, the other problem with that is if I talk about um, a long time ago, 50 million years ago, and what that species looked like, and I talk about today and what this species looked like, it isn't as if there was some linear path. It isn't as there's 12 species that will look exactly different because there are right. so many modifications and changes that occur and so many branches that head out in different directions. So instead yeah. of dealing with humans, because humans are 
there's a lot of baggage that comes along with talking right. about human evolution fossils because there's all this wrapped up in the fear and I want to be special and humans are specially created. So I'm going to deal with whales. It's a much better example. We have a ton of evidence from many, 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 many different fields of science, hmm. um, from genetics to to geology, to isotope ratios and chemistry, to fossil record, you name it, that show that whales evolved from four-legged mammals about 50 million years ago. Now, you're thinking, what? Like some people hear that and they're like, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. But what we can show is, and, and what we can explain also with story, and we can explain it with, with uh, isotope ratios and chemistry, but we can explain that uh, there was an open niche for an animal at some point, a four-legged mammal on land to get food out of the water that there wasn't a lot of, let's say, enemy in the water. And so some of them just were able to catch more in the water. When we look, we found a lot, a lot of intermediate species. I can send you an image right now where we see these modifications um, in physiology that ultimately lead to what we have as a whale today with this big, long, huge body and this giant funky head. But when we look at the whale, we actually have a pelvis. We can see that there's these little leg limbs and we can see we found intermediate species where the little leg limbs stick out of the, the species. And, and, and then we can find longer legs, but shorter than the original land mammal. And then we can talk about the, how the head changes. Mm. We can talk about the nose and how the nose is migrated towards the top of the head. And we see this species where the nose is migrating because the whales have it at the top of their head, the, the spout and the blowhole. And, um, we see this transit. We see all these kinds of transitions, happening in intermediate species. Are we going to find every intermediate species along the way? Well, of course not. Fossilization is extremely hard to happen. Um, so the organisms have to land in a particular moist environment, but not too moist and not too dry so that they don't just decompose. We want things to decompose. We need decompo decomposition for the cycle of life. Every now and then some things don't decompose. Those are our fossils. Right. What we don't have is before 50 million years ago, we do not see any giant mammal-like organisms in the fossil record that were in water or that looked anything like a whale. But mm. we have these intermediate species we see from 50 million years ago to today that give us this story. And when we compare that to chemistry, we compare it to geology, we compare it to geography and water movement in areas and stuff like that, we're like, what? It all says the same story yeah. so those we anyone saying we don't have intermediate species i'm like well you haven't been looking at the data i can give you books that show you the data for a particular organism and yeah there's a ton of intermediate species and 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 evolution is testable so we can predict okay we've got this looking organism and now we found a fossil that's oh 10 million years later and it's this organism looks like this and we think that these are you know from the same lineage we would guess that we might find a fossil that has some of these traits and lo and behold, we find them and they, they look like that. And I'm not saying we find them because people plant them. We actually can test them using all of the tools that we have in science to test them and that they're reliable and they seem to fit into our story. If we found a whale looking fossil that was a hundred million years old, this would rock the boat. Mm. We don't. We don't find that. Right. We've never found that. We're not gonna find that, in my opinion, right. because 
of I know how evolution works. Right. And so it's change in organisms over time to fill niches that aren't filled. Right. Because there's food, less enemies. It's deeply economic. <laughs> fairy. Fairy. That's a great word for it. And so, um, yeah, it's just it's just not a strong argument. It's just not. Because there's just a crud load of data out there for all these explanations. And so it's a matter of denying it, not looking at it, not calling it reputable. Can I add one more piece? Yeah, yeah, go for it. So I have some friends. I have a chemist and a philosopher. They, they do research together. And they, they wrote an article. That's a combination. <laughs> it's awesome because he does philosophy of science stuff with her. And they wrote That's this great. really great article about why you, you – it's not consistent or logical, maybe the word wrong, to reject uh, radiometric dating if you think – that chemotherapy works for curing cancer because the actual mechanism that works for chemo is the same science and mechanisms that we use for radiometric dating. So it's inconsistent to say, oh yeah, I accept it for this situation, but I don't accept it for this situation. Right. So, and we, and we just see a lot of that inconsistency. And so they kind of write, they write, they wrote an article about that and you know, I just, I appreciate th that kind of information because I don't have time to dig into things like that. And I appreciate being able to use that to say, I'm trying to be as consistent as possible. And yeah, there's gaps and holes in my story, in my theology, in my biology, uh, but it's the most consistent, coherent story I can tell at the moment with the information that we have out there. Good stuff. Could you maybe even, after we wrap this up, could you maybe send me some of those links so I can kind of put them in the description so that way people have access to some of these sure. books and articles and data? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I feel like there's going to be some people who are like, I'm not, I'm not going to ignore the data. Give me the data. Let me look at it. And so yeah. I want to give people the opportunity to, to do that if they want to. Like the Absolutely. Absolutely. Like there's a really great book, Your Inner Fish by Neil Shubin. Um, there's another book, Belief and Evolution or Evolution and Belief by Asher, Robert Asher. A really dry book. And I think he's just agnostic. He's <laughs> not a Christian. But um, he goes chapter by chapter just through this data. Um, and I read the whole book because yeah. I do those kinds of things. And, yeah, there's just some great stuff out there. Yeah. But that that is the, the, the downside of it is that it is to try to do the work. Yeah, to do the work of science it's it's such a slog there it's it's learning how to interpret data and like yes. i that's not something that well that you can learn how to do unless you really want to learn how to do it because it costs so much time and so much energy that's right so you can either say all right i'm going to use my authority as somebody like scientific american i think aaas or national academy of sciences or somebody puts that out a reputable organization that can only publish things that are very close to what the scientific consensus community is consensus on and read those as sort of your summary take home this is where science is at at the moment or you can say nope i reject those because um they're not biblically based well as we started this by saying from my perspective the bible is not intended to be a science book um, so I'm not trying to fit the science into a line with the Bible. 
Um, I think people that spend their life and career and 45 years of time figuring out something like looking at bones of whale intermediate species, I'm going to trust that whole group of them. Right. Just like I trust the fact that when I click this little button, this thing's going to turn on. And right. when I dial my son, I'm going to get him on the other end. Yeah. And I have no idea how that works, but yeah. I'm going to trust it. Yeah. Any, any institutional relationship is a relationship of faith. Like... You, you don't get to just say, well, this isn't faith because it's science. I don't know how to do science. I'm not a scientist. My relationship with science is entirely faith-based. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's, it's exactly it. We all rely on authority for almost everything we're doing in our lives. Right. But, and then we're picking to choose, but I'm not taking this piece, these authority people in this particular right. category because they're anti-faith. Well, you know what? Every single evolutionary biologist I've ever met is not trying to refute. I know they're out there, but yeah. the ones I've met are not trying to refute yeah. anything. They're just sitting in their lab trying to figure something out and get right. grant money. And maybe if they can find something amazing, they get a Nobel Prize. Yeah. Like, that's it. That's their goal. Right. Everybody leave me alone and let me do my work. But being in these, within a Christian community and, and have, I mean, it's still difficult to track down exactly where this debate started, where this story started about evolution and faith being so at odds with each other. But within the circles I was at, it's like you get this idea that everybody who believes in evolution is a, is a Richard Dawkins or a Lawrence Krauss or somebody who like literally is up in arms trying to kill the church and get rid of religion and that religion is the most evil. I'm pretty sure Dawkins has gone so as far as to say things like silly things like religion is one of the most evil things on the planet that used to get me gotten rid of. Whereas like, I think Dawkins is such an amazing teacher when it comes to evolution. He's so interesting. He's a, he's a great communicator. I don't know why he's, he's so, he hates religion so much. But then you have, I can show you quotes from Ken Ham. Right, that right. That bash people yeah. that accept evolution. I'm equally as insulted by him. Yeah. And he's supposed to be my in-group of right. Christian faith. So we've got these two people that are really noisy, and yeah. there's this huge majority in the middle that are not noisy. And can we just get our work done, yeah. and can we all stop fighting? Yeah, it's a snapshot of this greater problem of just paying the most attention to the loudest, most noisy, yes. most obnoxious people. Yes, yes. Which, and I don't mean to just brush off Ken Ham or Dawkins or any of these guys as just being obnoxious brats. I think they are, the, the behavior there is a little bit reprehensible, but I also could see those, they're incredibly, incredibly smart people. They are. They are, and they're motivated, and they've got their little box that they've created yeah. over time, and they're standing <laughs> on it and dog on it. Yeah. I'm staying here. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. <laughs> I can appreciate that to some extent. We've come full circle, haven't yeah. we? It's uh, oh, good. Well, thank you so, so much for doing this with me, April. This has Absolutely. been such a wonderful time to ch chat with you and, and hear your perspective on this stuff. Thank you for asking me questions. I appreciate, uh, I don't know, someone wanting to know what I think. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything I can kind of, anything we can kind of plug, any any books or blogs or things that you're working on that people can kind of follow up with and... and I would, I, one thing I would plug is biologos.org, B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S.org. Okay. They are a group of Christians um, and scientists that are really trying to build this bridge hmm. and make faith very um, front and center in the pursuit of science. And they're doing it um, using consensus science and... Um, trying to be as evangelical friendly as they can and um, 
I would say that is the place to go if you're interested in the intersect between science and faith. And they're starting to expand beyond evolution to ecology and human personhood and things like that. So um, it's it's a great organization. And then I'm I'm a I'm writing a we're writing a three book chapter. I have two uh, colleagues. It's not out yet. One chapter is on three, evolution. Three the, book chapter three, or three, three chapter, chapter book? book. Okay, Sorry, three chapter book. Thank <laughs> like you. That's a long chapter. chapter. <laughs> yeah. Um, one chapter is on evolution. Just ten thousand okay. words, and that's what I'm writing. A very layperson explanation of evolution, the Great, basics okay. for a Christian audience. Somebody, okay. So my audience is sort of my mom, you know. Somebody who's not a scientist. <laughs> okay. um, there's a pastor writing it, read his chapter about how we should, you know, evolution and faith are compatible from a pastoral viewpoint. And then there's a theologian, and he's writing how evolution and faith are compatible mm. from a theology. And our audience is the layperson. Great. Trying to make it a short enough book. There's just been a real need for that out there. Like people are like, I want to give yeah. something to my mom, but all these books are really long and really big and really dense. And and so we're trying to create that, but it's not out yet. But okay. if people Google my name in six months, maybe it'll be out. Okay, great. <laughs> I'll keep an eye out for that and make sure I can I can repost a link to that. Great. Uh, if I can remember, I'll send you a copy, great. Uh, a digital copy or something awesome. when it comes out. Okay. Thanks um, again. Garrett, really nice to meet you. You too. I'm allowed April. to say, Evan, really nice to meet yeah, you yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks great. so much. Well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good-faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently, and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.